if I am interested, I become like the go-to expert within like a week or like two weeks. And then I'm like, okay, another thing that I am interested in. So I will always have like a pocket full of fun facts that I can whip out. And if someone's like, oh, I'm interested in like something like philosophy, I'm like, oh, I read something about that. And then they'll ask me for more questions. I'm like, oh, sorry, I don't know anymore. (laughs) Cause then I got interested (laughs) in something else. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Welcome back. This is the sixth installment of my special top 10 replay series where I'm re-releasing 10 interviews that have really stood out to me and have stayed with me in some particular way and I feel deserve a replay. So hopefully if you missed this one the first time around, you'll get a chance to hear it. Or if you listened to it when it originally aired, I hope you'll enjoy listening to it again. This week, I'm re-releasing my interview with Nellie Lynn and Juno Lee, which originally aired as episode 38 back in June of 2021. I first discovered Nellie and Juno through their wonderful podcast, Two Addies and a Coffee, Please. I had listened to every episode and I just fell in love with them and their friendship and their honest and vulnerable banter and all of their F-bombs. So I reached out to them and we decided to interview them together. So this was the first time I had two guests and it was such a treat. So I chose this episode because our conversation about the anxiety and perfectionism that come along with ADHD has really stayed with me. And it was really eye-opening to listen to their experiences as Asian American women with ADHD. While they haven't recorded an episode of Two Addies in quite a while, the podcast is still out there and it's as fabulous as ever. I'll keep hope alive that maybe they will return. In the meantime, I just want to express my sincere thanks to Nellie and Juno for what they've put out into this world and for the mark that they've left on me. I trust they are both doing great things wherever they are. All right, here is a replay of episode 38 with Nellie Lynn and Juno Lee. This is the first time I interviewed two women at once, but it felt fitting since they are the co-hosts of one of my absolute favorite ADHD-related podcasts, Two Addies and a Coffee, Please. Nelly and Juno are two Asian-American women who have been friends for over a decade and struggled with undiagnosed ADHD for the majority of their lives. After many conversations on their shared struggles and their subsequent ADHD diagnoses, they were inspired to create a podcast to share their authentic stories about anxiety, ADHD, bipolar, and a host of other topics. Listening to their podcast is an emotional roller coaster, and I always come away so fired up and inspired. They are so articulate and they oscillate between intense topics like burnout within the Asian American community, the myth of the model minority, anti Asian hate crimes, hypersexualization of Asian women, and they also talk about their work life and relationships and their amazing friendship with the speed and agility of two 20-something women with ADHD, dropping F-bombs and giggling the whole time. I feel like their energy just leaps out of my phone every time I listen to them. 
In this interview, we talk about their diagnosis journeys and what it's like to talk so openly about so many taboo topics as they try to normalize how our society views mental health, especially within the Asian American community. Without further ado, here is my interview with Nellie and Juno. Enjoy. I just want to say, like, I fucking love your podcast. <laughs> like, I And you can tell I've been, li- whenever I'm listening to your podcast, because every third word that comes out of my mouth is fuck. I'm like, oh my God, who fucking wants dinner? Uh, you know, and you're just like, ah, oh, we're out of fucking milk again. Like, I, you just, I get so fired up listening to your podcast. I just, I, I fucking love that. So I, I love it so much. So I have to get that out of the way. I know you guys were in high school together, right? And... <laughs> Juno, you were diagnosed first, right? Is yes. that correct? And then you basically called Nellie and you were like, guess what? We have a <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it was one of our conversations um, that we've ha- been having for a while, for many years, I think, uh, talking about our chronic procrastination and like crazy like miracles at the, right before deadlines. And I think one of us made a joke about high-functioning ADHD and we found an article that described it. And I was like, holy shit, like, this is us. And she was like, oh my God. And then we scheduled uh, appointments with our psychiatrist. And I think by then we read about it like so much that we were already like pretty solidly like self-diagnosed, I think, um, <laughs> around the same time before my appointment though. <laughs> right. I think most of us are before we even get to the doctor. We probably know more than our medical professional usually by the time we get there because we've done so much research. And you're just like, like I was so just so excited. Like I felt like I was seen for the first time in my life and I had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety and all of these things over my life and nothing ever felt like it fit. And then this was just like, oh my God, everything fits into this little box so neatly. Um, But you, your brother was diagnosed in high school, right? So you kind of knew about it more or less, but it still never really applied to you. Yeah. I I think it's very strange that like I saw what he did in high school and it was so obvious to me that I didn't have that. I think because of the coping mechanisms I had um, to overcome things or just, I think, hide my dysfunctions. I just repeatedly told myself that like, oh, I'm able to do this. I'm functional. I'm functional. I'm just lazy. And I didn't realize all of the stress and the struggle I had to go through to get that done. I just saw the end result and I was like, I'm doing well in school. Like, of course I can't have that. Yeah. Right. So what was this article that you read? Do you remember the article, Nelly? <laughs> no, I remember we read a bunch of articles though on like Chad and Attitude Magazine. And I also read a bunch of like research journals on PubMed mm. to learn about the scientific basis of like ADHD. So I think I was super interested in really knowing everything about ADHD before I even got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And was this pandemic related or were you were diagnosed before the pandemic? I was diagnosed a week after Juno. So basically she called me up and was like, (laughs) I have ADHD. I think you should get diagnosed. And I set up a meeting right after our call with a psychiatrist. And within like 30 minutes of talking to the psychiatrist, she was like, yeah, you have ADHD. And I was like, are you sure? Should I go to another center to get checked? (laughs) And she looked at me and she was like, that's, that won't be necessary. (laughs) Um, And then she also like gave me, um, prescribed me Adderall and all of this medication in my mind, I was like, maybe she's wrong. I don't need this. But like taking Adderall, it changed my life. And I was like, I do need this. This is so much more helpful. Um, And I actually took a lot of psychology classes in high school. So I already knew about ADHD. So during my senior year in high school, I went to my um, like pediatrician and I told her, I think I might have ADHD. But because I feel like it's so underdiagnosed, especially with women and women of color, And I think a lot of Asian families don't talk about mental health at all. So my doctor was also like an Asian background. So she was like, are you sure you have ADHD? I don't think so. 
And she asked me a bunch of questions like, oh, do you have low grades? And I was like, no. And she was like, can you pay attention in class? I'm like, not really. But she was like, but your grades aren't affected. So it's not a problem. So that got brushed under the rug. And I never thought about it until I started working again full time. Yeah, I think one of the thing I love, one of the many things I love about your conversations is just how well you articulate that masking experience, right? Of like the, the kind of public persona that everybody sees versus what is going on inside of your brain. <laughs> and like, and like, I definitely, I mean, I had a therapist who was diagnosed with ADHD after her son was, and she started like gently suggesting it to me over the years. Like, I think you should look into this because I thought I had bipolar. Right. And I actually had never even heard of the term hypomania until listening to your podcast and oh, like, right. Right? and so, you know, but I, I have spoken to like interview with a lot of women who had that same feeling of like, I've got this pendulum of like insane interest in things and manic energy and, you know, late nights and all of those things that you really put yourself into. But then at the same time, like I never related to being hyperactive because I could also just be so paralyzed with like mm -hmm. lethargy and depression. And, and that was the part of me that like became my identity. Like I never really thought about the manic part. Like if you had asked me, like, are you a hyperactive person? I would have been like, no, I like to, I lie on the couch for days. <laughs> and, and so it's been fascinating to me, like how many people are, how many women kind of thought secretly that they had a uh, bipolar. Mm. And I don't even really know the difference between, or at least bipolar too. I don't really know the difference between bipolar two and hypomania. I don't know if you guys do. Oh yeah. I think bipolar uh, requires like uh, depressive episodes. And I think if you just have hypomanic episodes, I'm not, I'm not sure that is bipolar disorder, but. So it's just like basically the manic episodes with no downtime, no exhaustion or anything else. Oh, no, no. I, I think it's not the entire time. I think like you have to have a certain, at least one major hypomanic episode or one major depressive episode in the past year or something. I forgot which type that was for. I should look it up. <laughs> but it's interesting that you say that because for me, it was flipped. I thought there was no way I had bipolar disorder and that everything like depression or lethargy or excitement, that was all like a result of my ADHD issues. Yeah. I, I feel like it's difficult to identify what it is because so many coping mechanisms for ADHD require or like results in like some anxiety and depression. <laughs> yeah. That's something I have so much difficulty parsing, you know, like we talk about comorbidities and yet so many comorbidities tend feel like they are really just symptoms of living a life undiagnosed, you know? And sometimes I think that a lot of the symptoms that we have when we are undiagnosed are also like trauma of just being a woman in a mm. fucking misogynist you know, country for the last four years. Like sometimes a lot of this, I feel like, you know, maybe I wouldn't be as, you know, have as much, um, sensitivity and like, even like processing, you know, like sometimes I feel like a lot of my sensory processing comes from just like being a woman in society mm -hmm. sometimes. I don't know, but I, I often feel like I'm always questioning, like, is this ADHD? Is this not ADHD? And then I'm like, oh, but wait, don't forget about middle school. And then I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> okay. I had ADHD. <laughs> I think a lot of my coping mechanisms with like having anxiety and also ADHD is a result of trying to live in this neurotypical world where you have ADHD, but you're not allowed to kind of show that. So I remember just like when you mentioned middle school, I would always say, huh? 
what? All the time. And then because I was never paying attention or focusing, and then kids would make fun of me or teachers would be like, why are you not paying attention? But I would still get those high grades. So that added to my anxiety of like, oh, now I need to pretend and mask all of these mm -hmm. um, questions that I had. So even if I was confused, I wouldn't necessarily ask those questions because I'm like, oh, everyone else knows. So I'm going to mask it. And that gave me a lot of anxiety. So if I was called on the spot, which I was always called on, like <laughs> I hate being cold called, but I was always that kid who was looking around, but then I would be so good at pretending I know what was going on that it ended up being like a strength where I can improv really well and I can be put on the spot and told to speak. And I don't know what I'm going to be speaking about, but I would act as if I was so confident because of those experiences I had in high school, middle school and throughout like college. So now when I do get called on in meetings, I will say something <laughs> and be so confident and it will be hard for other people to tell when I feel anxious about being called on. Right. I know. I remember giving so many presentations in English lit after having read the first chapter and the last like three pages of the book and just getting up there and being like, I'm just going to be really, really confident in whatever the hell is coming out of my mouth. <laughs> and it worked. That was the thing. Like you, I remember Nellie when the, I think it was the first episode where you were talking about that dichotomy between like realizing how hard you've had to work in your life in a neurotypical world, right? Mm -hmm. Like realizing like that exhaustion that is always there because you have to, in some ways, work extra hard to do certain things, but at the same time, also feeling like you've never worked hard in your life, you know, mm -hmm. and that you've always half-assed your way through everything. And like, what do you even, like dealing with that? I mean, there's so many oxymorons, I think, with an ADHD diagnosis and identity, but that one just blew my mind, that feeling of like, yes, I am a really hard worker, but then like also deep down feeling like, yeah, but I've also kind of been like slacking my whole life. <laughs> Do you feel any more clarity, I guess, or is it just always there? I think for me, it's always there. I think it ties into having imposter syndrome and also being a woman working in a male dominated industry where first of all, I'm young, I am a woman of color. And then I'm always feeling like I can live more up to my potential, but I'm being lazy. But that now I have to remind myself, that's not laziness, that's my ADHD. And it is a disability, whether it's visible or invisible and trying to be kinder to myself and acknowledge like, these are the difficulties that I have. So I try to combat my imposter syndrome, but I think it's still difficult to give myself enough credit that I am working hard. Like I work on the weekends, I work at night after my nine to five job and I stay up late to work. And sometimes I, it takes me a long time to work and people see me working. They're like, oh, you're just on YouTube. You're doing all these things. But in the back of my mind, I'm still thinking about all these projects I'm working on. And I have to cons consistently remind myself that you are trying your best and that's all you can ask for. And trying to force yourself to work like everyone else does when they just sit down and work for six hours straight. I, I can't do that. And it's knowing that I need to work, like say in 30 minute bursts and then like take a break. So I think a lot of this has been a consistent battle for me to give myself enough credit and then also know when to take a break and rest. I know it's so funny. Like I, I worked in newspaper journalism for for many years. And I loved it because it was like, you were always on deadline. You had to get things done. And then at the end of the day, you were just done. You were a clean slate and you came in the next day and you were like, all right, what do you got for me? And so 
I loved it, but it, there was like, I remember long before I was even diagnosed, sort of coming to that realization of like, why procrastination is not a terrible thing. Like, I remember being like, I'm not actually procrastinating. It's all up here in my head. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about everything and processing and informing it. I just need the urgency of a deadline in order to get it from my brain onto the paper. And like, that's mm -hmm. going to happen at the, at the 11th hour. <laughs> and until the 11th hour, all I can do is just obsessively think about this thing mm -hmm. in the back of my head, but I can't actually like make an outline or like a rough mm -hmm. draft or any of those things. And so I'm like, you're not really, you're not actually procrastinating. Like there's, I think in that I've heard that like, difference between procrastination and laziness you know that idea that's like you're not lazy because you really are obsessively thinking about something mm. you're just paralyzed and like that mm. is I think that's a difference that is really hard to explain or articulate to other people mm. when you're not doing the thing I can definitely relate to that because I wrote for the school paper so we would have these deadlines I have to meet with my editor and then we would go through the whole thing so before then, I would pitch her this idea, and I would consistently think about it. So I'll write notes on my phone app, I'll write things on my hand, but I won't actually sit down to write an outline or actually write the thing yet until the day it was due it was three hours before I had to meet my editor. And I'm like, okay, I need to write it right now. And sometimes I would write it all on a Google Doc on my phone. And then I would go in and I'm like, okay, I'm ready. But it was never like, I always felt like I could do better. And I would beat myself up, like, why did I not start two days before, three days before? This could have been such a better article or better written piece. And then I was thinking, like, maybe if I did write it beforehand, it wouldn't have been as creative or have that out-of-the-box writing or thinking because I was, like, the procrastination helped me force all of my ideas on the page right then and there. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's what I was trying to say, and you did a much better job of explaining it, <laughs> of just that idea of, like, even if I did try writing something a few days ahead of time, it never would have been as good. Like the, the process must be in my head in order for me to actually be able to get it out. This episode is brought to you by Loop Earplugs. Loop Earplugs are my ultimate companion to a calmer and more focused life. If you're also an adult with ADHD, autism, or sensory issues, rest assured Loop Earplugs are designed with us in mind. Whether you're at your favorite coffee shop or in your office cubicle or simply at home with your kids, with their advanced noise reduction technology, Loop Earplugs gently lower the volume without blocking out the world completely. They're made from soft, hypoallergenic materials that are comfortable for extended wear. They fit snugly in your ears, ensuring you can wear them discreetly throughout the day. Plus, they come with a sleek carrying case, making them convenient to take with you wherever you go. Now that I'm in grad school, I love to use the Engage Plus loops whenever I'm walking around campus. They're specifically designed to reduce the level of sound entering my ear without completely blocking out all noise. My teenager loves her quiet loops for studying, and my son loves his Engage Kids loops for short intervals like riding the school bus or taking tests at school. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get 10% off your order when you visit loopearplugs.com slash womenadhd. That's loopearplugs.com slash womenadhd, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Your life, your volume. If you have ADHD, it can often feel overwhelming to find the right treatment. 
And then when you finally do get an appointment with your local clinician, there's no guarantee that they will have the adequate background or understanding of ADHD in adults, especially in women. You might end up leaving that appointment more confused and disheartened than when you entered. That's where Dunn comes in. Dunn is an online ADHD care platform that can get you all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. With experienced clinicians who know exactly what to look for, you can start getting personalized care as soon as today or tomorrow. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Dunn for just $79 a month and pharmacy co-pays as low as $0. Visit get.dunnfirst.com podcast to learn more. Again, that's get.dunnfirst.com podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. So now looking back, because you, you, I know you, Nellie, you went to college, do you know you started and dropped out mm-hmm. or were you just like, fuck it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I dropped out after first year, but I eventually oh. went back and like picked myself up by my bootstraps and got my degree, but it was like pulling teeth getting through that. <laughs> but I love the fact that you guys have talked about your differing education experiences because I certainly, I feel like my really, really dismal uh, relationship with university, like really has set the tone for how I thought about myself intellectually, you know, like I always kind of felt like I just kind of like we were talking about, like, I just scraped by, I could have done a better job, but I never did. And like, I just always sort of felt like I wasn't smart as a result. Mm. And so my diagnosis has totally transformed kind of my confidence in my intellect where I'm just like, oh, I just learn in totally different ways, like interviewing people and like stuff like that. So Mm. looking back at your experience with education, where were you like the signs were always there? Well, for sure, uh, towards the end of high school is when my executive functioning skills at school were deteriorating. And I was like, oh, okay, this is difficult for me. And I think when I entered college, I remember the cor- the course that was easiest for me or most like aligned with how I work were like the CS courses where you just were graded on overall big projects with the deadline, ironically, um, because I didn't have to keep up with like consistent assignments and things. And I just would do everything in the last moment and I would scrape by that way. But it was definitely really difficult for me without the structure of like, like a bunch of peers doing the same thing as you and a teacher who's like, I don't know, more invested in you than I think the typical <laughs> college professor. <laughs> yeah, and and I think, Definitely going to the boot camp. Uh, I quit after the first year to do a data science boot camp for three months. And it was just like morning to night. Uh, that was the only thing I was thinking about. And I think that's the only way I'm able to learn is either I'm like doing nothing and I'm just thinking and can't execute on anything or I'm not focusing or I'm just like really, really, really hyper-focusing on this one tiny thing. Yeah. And, and I think it's really confusing because kind of what you mentioned before about how you always see these two very different ends being really functional, like really capable or like being really, really like dysfunctional and you're not sure like where you stand. So sometimes I'm like forcing myself to go to the really functional hyper-focused part, even if it's not healthy. (laughs) No, I know. I I totally understand that, that feeling of like, well, I always sort of felt like that was basically the only thing I had going for me, you know, like I Mm. felt like my hyper-focus was like the best version of me. And so I would always like, I, and and I was actually really terrified to take medication because I thought I was going to lose that. I thought it was going to dull that. I was also terrified that I was going to be like on, feel like I was on cocaine and like (laughs) also something that they say, you know, they're like, no, nobody ever feels like that who has ADHD and is on a stimulant. But uh, what about you, Nellie? I think in terms of education, um, I think it was really, really difficult for me in high school and college 
But in high school, it was different, difficult in a different way where my anxiety, I felt like was so bad in high school because I needed to have high anxiety so I can meet all of these deadlines. And we had like tests and quizzes and all of this homework every single day. And I would um, be into all these extracurriculars and also do research outside of school. So I was getting probably like three hours of sleep every day and trying to keep up with all the schoolwork. And then it was basically like trying to do my homework, the class before the class <laughs> I was actually due. So like first period would be like on the train, the second period would be in first period. And that was every single day. And trying to keep up with all of these deadlines was so hard for me. But I had friends who would remind me like, hey, Nelly, we have an exam tomorrow or things like that. And they would share their study guide with me. And I feel like that having a support network like that really helped me get through high school. But I think going to college, it was immensely difficult because you're in a place that's hyper competitive. Everyone's intelligent. So that doesn't separate you from anyone else. But the caveat there was everyone else had a great executive functioning and I didn't. And I didn't have any of the skills, coping mechanisms, strategies to help me. I was basically kind of like barely surviving all throughout high school. And now I was in college where there wasn't anyone I felt like who related to me in terms of how I worked and could help me because it was expected that you learn planning and prioritization and time management in high school. So now when you got to college, you're supposed to organize your day and you're supposed to get to class, do all this assignment and also internships. And I can never really get things straight. Um, so it was really difficult for me for classes with a lot of different assignments to have everything there on time and um, learn on my own. So for classes I was interested in, I did really well. And for classes that I was not interested in, I did poorly. And I remember just feeling like, oh, maybe I'm not intelligent. I'm just like stupid because everyone else can do this, but I can't. And it started really questioning like who I was and my own identity. Um, and I think that really ate away at me in terms of like my own thinking of myself. And I think because to cope with that, I got a full-time job so I can like <laughs> distract myself and say like, oh, at least I'm being productive at this workplace. And then I can also do school. And like it, the reason why I'm not doing well in school is because I'm working. So that gave me kind of like an out or an excuse. So I knew it was my functioning and like organization mm -hmm. part. Um, so I think that really, like it was a really chaotic lifestyle. But once I graduated, it was like, oh, thank God. I remember just like having my senior year. There's this one course like econometrics. I never went to any class. It was basically just like straight up stats, calc, like math. And I didn't go to any class. So that means I had to study everything myself the week before the final. And somehow I did like, okay. And I got my degree and I was like, thank God. <laughs> I never had to think about this again. But to me, it was actually like basically a miracle. Um, and throughout college, I was actually double majoring and it had, I had to drop a major because I was not interested in it at all. And I had to make that decision. Like all these courses I took, I was not interested in and accept that I would graduate with a different degree. Yeah. I always had this sort of assumption that things would work out and then they didn't, you know, like for instance, with studying, like I had this assumption that if I went to class, this was after I dropped out. Like the first time I, my first year was just a disaster. I partied the whole time, never went to class because all of my classes were at like 8.30 and I couldn't understand how people could party and then get up the next day and go to class. <laughs> but I also realized that I was usually the last one at every party. Like I, I had a hard time of, I, I guess I, there was FOMO or whatever. I don't know. Like 
I could only do one or the other. And so when I came back to university, I was like, I'm not going to socialize. I'm not going to do anything. I'm Mm going to sit front row center. All of my focus and energy is going to be on this class. And like, I would go to every class and I would take notes and I would, and I would try to participate and I would do all this stuff and I would study and I would still do poorly on the Mm -hmm. tests. And I could, and you know, is that always that feeling of like, what is the combination of things that people are doing Mm -hmm. that I don't know what's miss what's the missing element for me. And so I always kind of lived my life feeling like I had some kind of undiagnosed learning disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then like, I think about like live, being an adult, right? Like there's also ways in which being an adult, I kind of have that same assumption that things are going to work out. So like, I remember the very first time I got my first like postgraduate job and they, they offered me a salary and I've, I naively was sort of like, well, that seems fair. Like you would, you would give me a fair salary because you were a grown up and I am a grown up. And like, I never realized that there was like, you needed to negotiate. And so I sort of mm-hmm. figured like, well, this salary should be able to pay for rent, cable, cell phone, like all of these things, car payment. Like I just sort of assumed that the money coming in would then cover all of the things that I found to be essential in life. (laughs) And so I had no idea how to budget anything. I just was like, it's all going to work out. Right. And now I look back and I'm like, what an idiot. Like, (laughs) but it was sort of like, or even just like looking for apartments. Like I remember the very first apartment I ever got when I was in university had no three pronged outlets. It it was like this really old building. Uh And I remember being Mm -hmm. like, well, that sucks. I guess I should look for those from now on. Right. And so like every time I've ever rented an apartment or bought a house since then, it's like the first thing I do. It's like list adds to my list of like, make sure there's three pronged outlets, which of course now Uh there are, but like there was another time I got an apartment where there was no shower head. I didn't even notice. It was just a bathtub. And, and I didn't notice until I moved in. And I was like, wait a minute, there's no shower in this apartment. And so then I was like, oh, I guess I have to look for that now. You know, it's like, it's just that feeling of like constantly fumbling and not mm-hmm. thinking ahead and not even mm-hmm. knowing like, what was I supposed to be looking for? You know what I mean? Like that. Mm-hmm. Just, and I think it's why so many of us feel like we're not adults, <laughs> you know, and you hear that, that phrase a lot with ADHD, which is like, everybody got the manual, but me. And like, I'm trying to think of like the way, so many ways in which I feel that way. Mm. And where I'm like, why, why is everybody thinking about this stuff? And I just, it never occurred to me to think about this stuff. I used to think that I was just spontaneous and I go with the flow and I'm chill <laughs> and I'm so good at adulting. I'm just chill with that. If I realized that a lot of the decisions I make was actually because it was way too overwhelming for me to like sift through the options that I had that I just went to the first one. So like, I think all the times I've moved places, I chose the apartment like the same day or the next day after I decided to move. And it was usually from like this company that's offering uh, like shared rooms or something. But I was always like, oh yeah, it's because I'm simple. I just take the first option because I like to live that way. Haha. But it was actually because I was way too stressed out to make any kind of decisions. But I'm realizing now that I have to do these like decision-making trees or whatever with my therapist. <laughs> it's true though. But you know, at the on the flip side, I do feel like we are more in tune with like our gut instinct. I think we are more instinctual than your average person. And maybe it's just because like, we don't have that choice. We, we have to just go mm-hmm. ahead because the thought of actually doing research on these things is so mind numbing that you're like, I will take, I will take the risk of this first choice as opposed to having to actually do the work of the, the, what is it? What did you call it? Decision tree? Oh yeah. Well, 
I think I do do that sometimes, like obsessively, like for several days, look things up. So that's the alternative. So I don't know anything less than that. So it's like, do I want to do all of that and obsess over this decision for a few days? Or do I just want to pick one? So it's like one or the other. I don't have like a middle. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, a, it's also really difficult to predict when you're going to have one reaction and when you're going to have the other one, which I think is why we are such mysteries to ourselves. You guys talk a lot on the podcast about uh, kind of the the stigma around mental health, especially in the Asian American community. And I think it's so important that your voices are out there. So I'm curious, I want to find out kind of what was your family's reaction to your diagnosis? Because you, And you, I want to find out from you, Nellie, if your siblings were also diagnosed or anyone else, like what was the reaction? And then I also want to find out what was the re- what's the reaction been from the community to mm-hmm. your podcast in general? I think my sister, she's a licensed social worker. So she has talked with a lot of like adults as well as kids with like anxiety, depression, trauma, things like that. So she's really well aware. And I think when I got diagnosed with ADHD, I told her like, oh, I have ADHD. And she's like, I probably have like inattentive ADHD as well. And then like, I think recently, like a couple months ago, she got diagnosed with ADHD and it wasn't a surprise to anyone because when we were younger, she wouldn't do so well in school. She was always like spacey looking around. And I think my parents had the most trouble with her because her grades weren't good. So they were always like yelling and being like, why can't you pay attention? So my mom actually got invited to like, I think her kindergarten class to sit in. And my mom got so angry because she was like, you're the only kid who's looking around while every other kid is paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) So I think like hearing all of that, you connect the dots later on. So then when um, I told my parents like, oh, like we have ADHD, they were like, what the fuck is that? Like, (laughs) what does that mean? Because I think in Chinese, it's like just not talked about like I don't even know the Chinese word to describe it so I went on Amazon and I tried to find like a book in Chinese so I can like communicate with my parents but like the most recent book was written like 2003 or something and I was like that's the only research (laughs) they have and I guess like I also went to China last year so I took my Adderall with me at the time I did not know it was banned in China so it was technically like illegal to carry it but because of COVID no one really checked my bags or anything So I brought it, but I think it was just so risky because all of these rules, I just thought people should have access to like their like medication and solutions for that. But in China, it's like banned completely. And I didn't know, but then communicating with my parents, I feel like they still have a really hard time understanding like what ADHD is, how it affects me. And I think that put a lot of strain on our relationship. So I was always really moody and irritable because I felt like I was always misunderstood. And they were just kind of like, why can't you be this like perfect daughter that they had envisioned? And I hated rules. I hated following directions. I hated all of that structure. And I feel like my ADHD made it worse for me in terms of communicating with them. And they just couldn't understand me. But I think knowing that I do have something because I feel like they made jokes when I was younger. Like there's something in your brain, like the wires are crossed or something. They're like, (laughs) why do you not do this? But I feel like now they're like, oh, it is that ADHD. And like, if I am forgetful or like I had, I used to have my glasses on my head and I would walk around. I'm like, where are my glasses? I can't find them. And they're like, it's right on top of your head. And I feel like I catch myself doing things like that and trying to retrain myself to not act impulsively or just like be irritated and try to understand my emotions more. So then I can communicate to my parents like, oh, when you say this, it makes me feel this way. Um, And I think my sister has been super crucial in this 
whole dynamic because she has the tools and the experience to like navigate our um, whole dynamic and experience. And my parents have been a lot more accepting to like therapy and this type of treatment because I was like, if you don't believe in therapy, my sister would be out of a job. And they're like, oh, you're right. Okay, cool, cool. I think it works. So I think they have come all around in terms of like mental health in the community. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Juno? Because you you also had your brother kind of paved the way a bit for you, right? Yeah. So my brother was diagnosed with ADHD and bipolar disorder in high school. And I think similar to Nelly, my parents were just like, wait, what? <laughs> what is ADHD? And I so think- who, Was it a teacher that recommended he- get diagnosed or how, um, how did that even happen throughout middle school and elementary school he was fine but in high school he like really really struggled to even do like homework or do tests or anything because he was just so not motivated and also he was in a, also in a very competitive high school like Stuyvesant in New York so I think in comparison because I always saw what he was doing I thought like there's no way I have ADHD and there's no way I have bipolar disorder and I think everyone in our family thought of it as like a very very serious like crippling thing so I think when I first told my mom that I went to a psychiatrist, it was more like, wait, why are you spending money? How expensive is that? Like, what? <laughs> and then I think when I was trying to explain to my grandparents and my uncle, they were just kind of like, what do you mean? I thought you were like the most functioning one in our family. Like you have no issues. And I was like, oh, because I feel like I spent so much of my childhood, I guess, hiding my struggles and trying to pretend like everything's okay. And I think I'm learning now to like, I guess, open up to my family a little bit more and expose when I'm struggling. And because in the past, when I was procrastinating things, my mom would get really upset with me thinking that I was just being super lazy. But now she's kind of like, I don't know, she looks at me a little bit pitifully. (laughs) But she like understands that it's something I struggle with and not, not just like a choice. I feel like when you guys, you guys have talked about like this, this idea of that academic pressure and how it just sort of forms a powder keg almost in, in situations where it's like you are, you're like, you're internalizing all of that struggle and you're, you're, I think females especially too, right? Like we, mm. we're the good ones. We aren't disruptive. And, um, you know, like your uncle said, like, you're the, you're the well, you're the one well-behaved one. Um, <laughs> And I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm just totally rambling at this point. <laughs> no, I think that's correct. Because I think even um, in high school, when I started taking CS classes as like a female in a male-dominated industry, I guess, there's a lot of times I have to be very cautious of how I'm presenting myself and making sure I sound really confident and I know what I'm talking about. And I think I have to do that both because I'm a girl and also because of ADHD. And I'm just everything's like a big blur. Sometimes I'm not very aware of what's happening internally and I'm only focused on like what I'm being perceived as. And I feel like I spend so much time making sure that I seem functional and I'm communicating, like getting across the right way and everything that I just like forget what's happening on the inside. And even when I was like in Denver and I was working at a job and I was living-ish with my ex-boyfriend at the time, even to him, I would hide everything I was struggling with. So to my coworkers, to my friends, to my family that I called, to my ex-boyfriend, nobody would know that I'm struggling, that I would just even forget that I was struggling. Yeah, I think that goes back to kind of what we were talking about before with that feeling of like, I I don't actually work hard. And so therefore I am kind of fundamentally lazy. And like that, I that idea of like when somebody says a term and you're not familiar with it, instead of saying, what is that? which you are smart enough to be in the room and to ask those questions. But our response is always like, must Google later, pretend you know what (laughs) they're talking about. (laughs) 
uh, as though you're going to get found out, you know, like you're mm-hmm. going to get, it's going to get uncovered that you don't actually belong here. And I feel like, like we kind of live with that low level anxiety all the time. So another thing that kind of blew my mind when you're, I think it was the episode about being naked, right? <laughs> when Juno, you were talking about like the difference between being vulnerable and being an open book. And I was like, oh, like I never thought about it that way because I've often been told, like I am an open book. I have no self-censor. I have no ability to like keep things in. And so I just blurred out thoughts and I always kind of joked that I was like Sophia from the Golden Girls and I must have had a stroke because I can't like, I can't keep my thoughts inside. I don't know (laughs) when I'm supposed to censor when I'm not. And I, but I also like, am an open book when it comes to like my ADHD. Like I didn't even think about the fact that I shouldn't tell people about it. And like, I didn't even realize that there was this stigma until it was already out there. And then people were like, I'm so sorry to hear about your diagnosis. And I'm like, I don't, it's not terminal. It's not like I've got two years to live. Like you don't have, you have no idea what I'm talking about. So forget it. I'm not even going to try to just explain it to you. But, you know, I've often been told, like, you're so vulnerable because you talk about things without shame. And so many of us can't talk about those things. And you're doing this service to the community, whether it's, you know, I've talked openly about like binge eating and dieting and all of these things that like, I've always been an open book about. But it never occurred to me that like, that is actually not vulnerability, right? Like vulnerability is really opening up about the things that you really struggle with. And like these, all of these things that I'm an open book about, I'm like, I don't struggle with those. And like, I've always kind of talked about like, if I make a joke about how like, oh my God, I'm a hot mess. In that moment, I don't feel like a hot mess. If I really, in the moment when I feel like a hot mess, you're, I'm not going to say anything. You're not going to hear from me. And like, those are the moments when people are really struggling, right? When they're not saying a word. And so I just thank you for that. Like, I loved that ep- that episode was so good, but like, I just, it's been made me really think about that difference between, you know, what, you know, how vulnerability is really just something truly, really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so what has it been like to be like such an open book, especially in the Asian American community with this podcast? Cause you guys really let it all out there. <laughs> I don't even think we're super conscious of it all the time. I think Nellie was mentioning the other day that like <laughs> she was talking to a friend recently and remembers what she said in our podcast and we were talking to her and it's just like, what? Because yeah, I don't I remember all the time. I feel like I'm talking with Nellie and people bring this up like, oh yeah, I remember this. Oh yeah, because of this. And I'm like, whoa, oh, okay. <laughs> I have a friend who I talk to and sh- and she mentioned like, hey, Nellie, in episode like five, you said this. And I remember you said this. So I, like, that's funny. And I'm like, I said that? <laughs> I think it's when I talk to Juno and we're talking to podcasts, we see each other. So it feels like we're talking to each other and not necessarily like all of these other faces that we don't hear because on a podcast, it's, you don't see faces. You just see, like hear people's voices and you can really be, I guess, as open and vulnerable and just talk about your most innermost thoughts in, um, I guess, like open book manner. And then I think being really open and vulnerable, I, I was watching this like, Kristen Bell video on YouTube where she talks about her depression and I love what she said she was like at my age there should be nothing that's taboo and she talks openly with her kids about sex and her depression and things like that and I was thinking about like that's true everything that we've ever felt or thought some other human has probably thought it felt it so why is it that it our society considers things taboo or we shouldn't talk about these things so for me I try to remind myself like 
everyone goes through this at one point of their life or another. These feelings, they're not unique to me. So I think talking about it really reinforces that I'm living this life that is true to what I believe. Like, I don't think this should be shameful. I'm not ashamed of my ADHD or my anxiety or like all the struggles that I've been through or anything. I think it's, you make mistakes as like a human being, then you learn from it and then you evolve and then you become a better person and owning up to things that you have made mistakes about in the past or like things that you fucked up on and being vulnerable and being able to curse and being able to be authentically yourself. I'm, I create, I feel like when we have these conversations, we do create value. And if someone else out there hears this conversation and it brings them some sort of comfort or connection and they feel less alone, I feel like that's basically the message that we want to put out into the world. And if other people will discriminate me or have this stigma that, oh, I don't want to hire this person, work with this person, that's a reflection on them. And I really try to think about the message that we're sending out instead of like, oh, like they're going to find out things about this. But I'm but then I'm just like, oh, it's fine. Like things happen, things get fucked up and sharing all of the struggles makes it feel like we're more connected because everyone has these struggles. Yeah, right. And I think, yeah, I, I sort of feel like so many of these podcasts and that that desire for advocacy comes from feeling like, oh my God, I struggled for so long. I had no idea what was happening. If I can help one person come to the same realizations I did and not feel like shit all the time like that would be that would make it all worth it and yeah and I think that's when something I love about your podcast too is like listening to the two of you like that you have each other and that you have this history together and like how much you guys validate each other I think is really beautiful because it's sort of like what as a listener you're having those moments when you're listening to the podcast and you're like oh my god yes oh my god yes but the fact that you guys are kind of doing it in real time and you've got this history and this friendship and think it's very lovely. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. 
It's called Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So what made you even decide to start the podcast? Were you like, we're having such amazing, mind-blowing conversations, we might as well record them? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think we were in a conversation with um, Nellie's close friend. And I think, Nellie, I think you said that you've been talking about it with her a lot, but she wasn't like totally getting what was like you versus ADHD. And I was just repeating everything that Nellie was going through. And she was just like shocked <laughs> at how much we had in common. So she was like, you guys should definitely do a podcast. I think it all started from, I guess, like me and Juno were talking about our struggles. We were like, we both work in tech. So we're like, let's do some market research. And we can create our own solution. Like there must be some sort of technology that we can leverage or build ourselves and have our own task management application so we can help ourselves because there is no app that I've found that helps me. I've tried Asana, Trello, ClickUp, all of these different things I've tried and I haven't stuck with it. Um, So when we're doing market research on high functioning people and how they work, so maybe if they have some sort of system or strategy, maybe we can build it into this app. So I was interviewing my close friend and she is the most organized person I know. She's great with planning, prioritizing. And I was talking to her and all of our struggles. So when me and Juno started talking about like what we really struggle with in terms of like getting things done and working on a deadline, she was like, oh, that's so interesting that you mentioned this because I just thought it was a Nelly thing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, it's not a Nelly thing. It's an ADHD thing. She was like, you guys should start a podcast and talk about this. Um, But I think me and Juno were really, I guess we were afraid of the stigma and the backlash. So we actually kept our last name out of our website. (laughs) (laughs) It was like intentionally designed that way. But then slowly we added in our last name to like, Um, social media things and people have been reaching out to us in terms of like saying that we really they really resonated with our stories and they connect with us and I had someone reach out to me with like through LinkedIn and I had a coffee chat with her and she was a student um, I think in her senior year and she was saying how like thank you so much for sharing your story Um, and she was telling me about her mental health journey and how she is starting her own blog to write about her own experiences. And I was like, I'm so happy that this inspired you. And she was saying how, even though there is stigma out there, if someone doesn't want to hire her because of that, she wouldn't want to work for that company anyway. And I was like, you know what? You're right. That That's true. <laughs> so I don't feel any more shame in terms of like being out in the open with what I do struggle with and trying to destigmatize and normalize mental health conversations. Uh, I think especially in this past year and the pandemic and working from home. And like, there's been so many mental health issues that have come to light that I feel like, yeah, if we are kind of turning the ship around and and taking the stigma out of a lot of these conversations that it will eventually kind of filter into the workplace and mm-hmm. HR or whatever. In terms of the app, I've just come to grips with the fact that like, I'm going to be super into an app for about a month <laughs> and, and then I'll move on. There's nothing that's ever going to work for me long-term, maybe. I don't know. But you're, so you're both on medication. Um, how has it, how have you found that to be life-changing? 
in the beginning when I was still in denial about ADHD, I think Adderall really solidified what my issues were because in the beginning, if I got distracted and I couldn't focus, I would get excited about something else and go on and do that other thing. But I think with Adderall, it like forced me to stay in my seat and I stared at my computer screen, but it was just now, instead of like going in circles and running around, I was just like standing still and I couldn't move forward. So it was became very, very clear to me that I had an issue with like prioritization and execution. And it wasn't just a lazy thing or procrastination thing. It was like, I didn't know how to proceed because of executive dysfunction thing. It's, it hasn't been very consistent with it. It's been like on and off, but I think right now for sure, it makes a huge difference in my ability to just find work less overwhelming. I had a little bit of a hiccup in the beginning because I wasn't managing my bipolar disorder. And I think I was using it as a crutch for when I was depressed. And yeah, that was kind of messing it up. <laughs> I'm mm. still figuring out what works out best. But I think right now, the most important meds for me were the um, mood stabilizers and the antidepressant I take for my bipolar disorder and ADHD as like as needed for work. I think for me, I take Adderall, like the XR, so I can do my work for work. It has helped me a lot in terms of like not spending like like a lot of hours writing a short email or like trying to start something. And I'm like, oh, I get a Slack message. I'm like, I need to answer that now. And then I answered that. And I'm like, oh my God, what was I doing? And on my computer, I have always like five plus windows open. And in each window, I have around like 90 to like a hundred something tabs. And it would <laughs> crash my computer all the time. So I feel like my working style is really chaotic, but with Adderall, it really helps me. Like I make a list of the things I have to do and have to cross everything out. I still have struggles with like staying on task. And that's why I realized that I need times where I'm blocked off. And I'm like, I can't answer any emails or slacks or anything. I need to do like this one piece of work. I think it's still like an ongoing battle of like trying to see what works and what doesn't work. But I think the main thing is I need to find a task interesting or try to make it interesting. So I like actually go and like do it instead of it being this like painful, dreading feeling that I always feel doing this task that I don't like doing. And I also have like a lot of fidget toys around me so I can like fidget and like <laughs> do other things with my hands so I can like focus. And I think for my job, I'm always in a lot of meetings. I hate turning on my camera because it distracts me. So I like don't. And that's how I can stay focused and listen to the meeting and what's going on. But I also like mute myself so I can play with my fidget toys and not like make those noises that distracts other people. But I think like in the workplace, I'm really cognizant of like when other people turn their like camera off or they're muted. I know that not everyone has the same like, like normal thing where everyone turns on the camera. It's like, you don't know what other people are struggling with or like, what their home life is or what they're distracted by or like the struggles that they have. So I think it's important that I know my struggles that I am really cognizant. So if other people like don't want meetings and they like slacks or emails, I'm like, yeah, that works perfectly fine. As long as communication is in different channels. Um, so I feel like I try to make things more accessible to other people as well, because I know that same struggle that I deal with. So the interview that you had with Jill Chang, I really had never thought about, because I'm always questioning, am I an introvert? Am I not an introvert? There's so many ways in which I think I am an introvert, especially this past year and how like how much gratitude I've had for not having to see people, um, <laughs> except for my family, like my immediate family. But at the same time, like I love conversation, you know, and I love like th this kind of socializing. I, I don't want to go to a party, but like I love, you know, having deep conversations and I really like feel energized from them. Um, but I had never really thought about that idea of like how much 
work is put into kind of managing expectations, you know, like she was talking about just sort of the way in which you kind of have to like map out almost like talking to the mirror, you know, where you're like, you build these scripts when you're an introvert where I don't know, maybe mm-hmm. it's not an introvert. Maybe it's just everybody. I, but like, you know how you have to kind of have, you, you have to anticipate what somebody might say to you. And then you have these like scripts a lot of the time that you have to, does that make sense? Where I'm I do like, that a lot. Yeah. Like I, there's a lot of that kind of uh, anticipating how a conversation is going to go so that you aren't totally flustered and immediately shut down. And so then it's almost like choose your own adventure. Like you have to kind of <laughs> like So would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert or you don't freaking know? I would say I'm an extrovert, but for like conversations that are like professional or networking, I do have to like anticipate what other people are going to ask me and what I would say. Because I think there is like that fine line between being like casual and then professional, because I think like what you said, I am, I will just blur everything out. (laughs) And sometimes it's like inappropriate, like, oh, this is not the setting to say that thing. So I always have to like do this whole like tree of like, is this appropriate? No, this is not appropriate. Like some people are like really uptight and they're like, let's keep things strictly professional So like, I'm like, okay, don't curse. You can't do this. You can't say that. Like you have to like keep on task and on focus. So if they ask you a question, I can't like go on a tangent about something else. That's not relevant, Nelly. Like you have to answer the question and ask another question about this. I think it's really hard for me to predict like natural flows of a conversation of, because I think things that people think are unrelated to me, it's like, it's relevant because there's so many thoughts (laughs) in my head. So it's trying to filter out things that are not relevant and trying to like, I guess not be a weirdo in terms of like coming off like, oh, like this person is strange. I don't want to work with them. So I think that's my main concern. But I think in my personal life, I'm so talkative and I love meeting people and having these conversations. But at work, I am so much more aware and so much more energy consuming because I need to like stay on task. What about you, Juno? Would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert? According to tests and stuff, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> Definitely a lot of times I feel like an introvert. I think it's confusing to me because I have varying levels of like energy and my mood, I guess, depending mm-hmm. on my point in life. But I definitely think that I do better in like one-on-one situations than group situations sometimes because it's like you mentioned, it's easier to like predict what's going to happen next. And I feel like one thing that's difficult for me is either I'm like completely absorbed in my own head and I'm daydreaming and I can't hear the other person or I'm completely absorbed in just them and I ask a bunch of questions and I want to understand them, but I don't talk about myself at all. Or I'm like really absorbed in my head and I'm talking about it and I'm not really hearing what they're saying. So I feel like it's very difficult for me to like manage everything very carefully and be very conscious about like two people being present in the room and having a conversation. So it is a little bit draining if I do that for too long. But I would say I I am, I do need socializing and extra it's either like I need to be one-on-one or like a really big group of people we can like jump around because yeah. that's okay if you have a short intention span you can jump here and then have another <laughs> time to jump here and it's totally normal and <laughs> you're allowed to disappear every few seconds well and I think you also like when there's more than one person there you have a tendency to kind of deflect because you have too much to say with every mm-hmm. question you know so if someone's like how are you and you're like how am I do you have three hours to listen to how I am <laughs> and so the then the other option is like good you <laughs> like immediately <laughs> deflect and then like you're so quiet I get told that my whole life you're so quiet I'm like no I'm not I really just don't like you <laughs> <laughs> that's funny uh another thing I love about your podcast which I hope this comes out the right way which is 
I love that you guys don't have the kind of podcast which we see a lot of with ADHD, which is like, here's five ways that you can master your calendar, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're basically just like, let's talk about how crazy this is. But it's also not just like, this is a disorder, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I feel like you really have that balance really well between like, the kind of toxic positivity side of like, this is a superpower and everybody who was ever smart and genius has ADHD and you do too. And then the other (laughs) thing, which is like, I'm sorry about your terminal illness or (laughs) like, you know, really like talking about the struggle a lot. So I feel like I really love that you balance that. And I feel like it's very real and it's very relatable as a result. So thank you for that. Um, But I do want to know, you know, I do like to ask, like, what do you love about your ADHD. Really quick before that, um, you're mentioning that you uh, really love that we are not necessarily focusing on like just ADHD or like topics or whatever. I think that's part of the reason why we were more comfortable um, exposing ourselves and letting our coworkers or friends see this because I think when I was first looking at uh, why someone would do a podcast, I came across like, oh, it's a chance to be, it's like the most authentic mode of communication or whatever. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Um, And I think we're normalizing ADHD, not by necessarily like showing how many people have ADHD or whatever, but just showing that we're real people. And we talk about other experiences in life, other issues we have, mental health related or not. Even a lot of neurotypicals in our audience have reached out saying that they related to a lot of our struggles and experiences, which is really nice because then people see like, oh yeah, we're just people and we have different degrees of struggle with certain things. But yeah, I think people just are encouraged to see uh, us opening up and being vulnerable about our issues and they are encouraged to do the same. So, and as for, I guess, what I love about my ADHD, I think one thing is that sometimes because of our lack of dopamine or whatever, we have, we find boredom so unbearable or structure so, so unbearable that we're like forced to find something more interesting. That was definitely the case with my college dropout story. A lot of people think it's like, oh, wow, tech dropout, like so ambitious, risky. I want to do, it was out of necessity. And I think like when I was doing a meetup um, in Denver and I was struggling with my job, I had to start a meetup and be involved in another meetup because I needed something else to do. And even for our podcast and like what we're doing now, it's like, we know we can't survive in a regular nine to five forever. So we have to do something more interesting. So I definitely like that part of ADHD. What do you love, Nelly? Um, I think for me, I love most about my ADHD is like my curiosity and passion. I think with the hyper focus and being super curious about learning and the love to learn, I think I can, once I'm like really interested in something, I will find all of the information out on like Google and the internet and I will study it. I think so when I first got interested, like in learning more about ADHD, all I could think about was learning about. So I watched like everything on YouTube. Then I went on PubMed and like Googled everything and I read it. Um, (laughs) And I think for everything else, like if I am interested, I become like the go-to expert within like a week or like two weeks. And then I'm like, okay, another thing that I am interested in. So I will always have like a pocket full of fun facts that I can whip out. And if someone's like, oh, I'm interested in like something like philosophy, I'm like, oh, I read something about that. And then they'll ask me for more questions. I'm like, oh, sorry, I don't know anymore. <laughs> Cause then I got <laughs> interested in something else. 
Um, and I would also say like being able to have so many different interests and passions, you can connect a lot of the themes and patterns that other people might not be able to see because they're only studying that one specific field or industry. But because I'm interested in so many things, I see the patterns across like various different fields and interests and being able to connect the dots and being able to think outside of the box. And I think being neurodiverse allows you not to think in such a linear fashion, but being able to kind of expand laterally. Um, and I also think like my ADHD kind of ties into my personality. And I would like to say that I, I see myself really charismatic and entertaining and kind of down to earth. So I've always had friends tell me like, oh, you're so easy to talk to and like amusing. And I'm like, oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> I do think it's because like, like a lot of my quirks where I like see something and I'm like, okay, every, every time I'm in like a grocery store, I'm like, oh, chocolate. And I'll like walk there. So I feel like kind of like a childlike sense of like fascination with the world is still kept in. So like my favorite book is The Little Prince. And I really love seeing things with like a fresh view set and fresh eyes. And I feel like I can still keep sort of some of that like within me because of like ADHD and how my brain works. So yeah, I mean, I guess I, if, if it's not obvious, I love your podcast and what you're doing, and I'm so um, I'm so glad you guys are doing this, and I look forward to so many more episodes. And um, yeah, all right, well, thank you so much, guys, for taking the time to talk with me and tell me your story. I really like chatting with you. Thank you, thank you so much for having us. It was really nice meeting you. There you have it. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.